Amen. You can be seated. We'll get our Bibles out. Open to the book of Philippians. Whew, I'm bringing my water up here. What happens tonight? What happened to me this morning? thought I was going to melt right on out. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to have a... Uh, uh, we're going to start a, a new series on Sunday nights uh, for a few weeks, and we're going to be talking about living out. We're going to talk a little bit about the practical ways in which we're to live as Christians and the various things that we encounter and how we're to respond in light of those. So we'll begin tonight sort of setting the stage in Philippians 2. You can find that on page 1349 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you need a copy of Scripture. Philippians 2, where Paul, really the Apostle Paul, calls us to shine, to uh, be holes in the darkness, if you will, to live lives that uh, are going to be impactful to the world in which we live in. And so some things that I've been thinking about. Um, For example, every great movement of God, every... Everything that God does of uh, consequence on the earth through people, it always begins with one man or one woman who has a burden in their heart or who, who begins to care deeply about hearing what it is God has to say. Great things become, uh, come through burden. If you just look at, for example, Nehemiah. And if you just open to Nehemiah chapter 1 and you read about... I mean, here Nehemiah does the impossible uh, through the strength of God and rebuilds the walls around Jerusalem in 52 days. And all that begins with him weeping and brokenhearted over the condition of the walls around his homeland. That's how God works. God, When God breaks your heart, that's an indication to you that uh, there's something around the next corner that you might want to tune into, you might want to pay attention to. When your heart is dislocated, there's a a great opportunity for God to do something amazing. And, you know, it's really the realization that you can't change everything, but you have to change something. That we we can't just live in such a way as we just accept the way things are. That's what I want to talk about in this Living Out series is that You know, when I really think about it, the question is not, is God speaking? The question is, am I listening? God is speaking. But are we listening? Are we, are we, uh, are we open? Is our, our ears, are they inclined to what God is saying? And, and is our heart turned towards the things that God desires to do? I think there's too many that are content to dabble in Christ. And there's too few that are willing to be discipled in Christ. That there's this uh, sort of apathy that is, is flooding Christianity today that it's worrisome. It's worrisome. It's as if there's multitudes of professing Christians standing on the shore of God's ocean, content to dip their toes in once or twice a week and then go home. All the while, God is calling us to dive in headfirst and to experience the vastness that it means to be counted among the beloved and called among those who are empowered. I mean, you, you just think about it. it. It begins with a simple question. 
Are you discontent with the status quo? I mean, what, what do you see when you look around you? Do you, you look around at your life? Do you look around at the people that you know and at the, in the places that you uh, operate? And do you see God doing great things? And I don't mean in you. I mean, I do mean that, but through you. That this, this, that's why I've called this living out. I just feel like we, we've moved into this era of uh, Christianity where the, the American church is, uh, it, it just exists on self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction and, and self-endeavors. That it's all about what we can learn. It's all about what we can possess and what we can harness. And, and if, we, if, we, uh, if we are successful in studying our Bible or, or, or praying uh, or whatever the case may be, if we're successful in that, we're satisfied that we're successful. As if it just sort of starts and ends with us. Does the disconnect between what you read in Scripture and what you see in the world around you, and I mean in the Christian world, lived out on a daily basis, does that disconnect grieve you? Do you ever just spend time reading Scripture and just sort of push the Bible back and just stop for a minute and go, what happened to that? Oh, well, where, where is that today? I mean, how we've relegated God to this, uh, you know, the, the, the God of this present age as if, if, I mean, we can sing that He's unchangeable. But I mean, one minute we're singing He's unchangeable. But how is that possible? If He's really unchangeable, then shouldn't we feel somewhat familiar with the things we're reading in the New Testament? Shouldn't that be something that, that our hearts resonate with, that we see being played out in the lives around us? Isn't that true? I think it's fairly obvious. But this idea that, that God has somehow shifted in this age, that in this modern time, now God has has reappropriated himself now. Now he's the modern God. He's the politically correct God. He's the, he's the God who minds his boundaries. Or I don't know. But I say no. He's the God of the Bible. And he's always been the God of the Bible. And he'll always be the God of the Bible. And I'll be honest with you. I'm not content with anything other than this. What is going on here is what I desire. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to live. These are the things that I want to see in my own life and the lives around me. These are the priorities that I long to have in my own heart. I think, what would the Apostle Paul say if he, if he walked into the average American church of today. How, do, how would that conversation go? What would that sermon sound like? I think it would sound like the book of Philippians, to be honest with you. I think a lot of what Paul would say is exactly what he said 
to the believers at Philippi. Because if you think about it, the, the book of Philippians is, is it's a book about the joy of living in Christ. But it's a book written to a people who live in an utterly and completely pagan culture. Philippi was as pagan as pagan could be. And they're, they're struggling. They're, they're struggling internally with the pressure of the culture in which they live in. And so the context of what Paul says in Philippians is, I think, I think has a lot to do. I think it, 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 it has a lot of connection to where we are today. So let's pray and then we'll read what Paul says and we'll see how that applies to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect word, God. What a treasure we have in your scripture, Lord. Thank you for giving us your breathed word. God, everything we need for life and godliness supplied right here before us. There's no, there's no veil. There's no hindrance. There's no obstacle. It's just given freely as much as we want to partake of you, we can. And so, Father, in this time that we have tonight, will you help us to partake of what you have for us? God, thank you for these words we're about to read. And God, may they bring challenge and comfort into our hearts as we, uh, as we reckon with your word. God, we need ears to hear, hearts that will receive. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, I want us to just think about this for a few minutes. Think about what Paul has to say. Think about how this might apply to us. You know, I I think that there are some very worthy things uh, for us to fear. I know what the Scripture says about us not receiving. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. I understand what Scripture says. But I also think there's some things we ought to fear. I think there's some fears we ought to have. Uh, and, and I know that the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. But we should fear the very real possibility that we would squander the opportunity to be all that God has called us to be or enabled us to be or positioned us to be. In other words, I think that we ought to be terrified that we would squander our time on this earth. That time would just tick by. That the clock would just roll through and that we would just roll along with it. But I don't sense a a great fear about missing out on what God has. Do you? I mean, you, you feel free at Sunday night. You feel free to respond, correct me if you uh, feel differently. 
But I just don't see it. I, I just don't see that. I, I, I worry that so many just take for granted all of these these mountaintops in Scripture that, that call us to something so great and so amazing. I mean, here Paul is essentially calling believers to obey. And obedience has become a bad word in, in our culture. That Obedience is not something we really want to talk about. It's not something we want to hear. And, the, and, and because we have a dented heart that tilts towards legalism every opportunity we get, we then misconstrue obedience and, and push away from obedience in a sense of legalism when obedience is all about love. That's what obedience is. When you hear the word obey in Scripture, you should immediately sense in your heart the word love because those two things go together. When you hear obey, you should just hear love. That's exactly what I believe you should hear. But I don't believe that that's what many people hear. You see, what Paul is calling us to do in Philippians 2 is is not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and grit ourselves in and, and grunt out some more tenacious uh, uh, strength within us or resolve within us to, to get through this. That's not at all what Paul is calling us to do in, in obeying God. Paul is doing the exact opposite. He's calling us to respond to what God has said based on love. In other words, how think about this, for example. How would you... How would you groan within you? How would you, how would you uh, stir up within you the fortitude to actually obey the great commandment? Have you ever thought about that? In other words, how, how are you going to grit your teeth to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't grit out love. You can't do that. Love either pours out of you or it doesn't. But you can't, you can't squeeze your fist and grit your teeth and make yourself love. It simply doesn't work that way. And so therefore, Jesus comes along and He says, well, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Isn't that what he says in John 14? Yes. If you love me, keep my commandments. And we think, oh, that sounds so hard. And he's saying, wait a minute. He's not saying, hey, keep my commandments. And that will, that will enable you to love me. By keeping my commandments, you'll earn the right to love me. He's saying, if you love me, if you love me, if, if, your heart is infatuated with me, then respond to that in obedience. You see? But yet, when you hear obey, suddenly we instantly have the mindset of, of a, you know, we're suddenly we're taken back to uh, slavery and, and, and oppression and... 
everything that's not the gospel. Isn't there great joy in pleasing people we genuinely love? Isn't there? So then what happens when we obey God? We are compelled to... I mean, as I thought about this, I mean, you know, I have to use simple, uh, you know, experiences of my uh, very simple sheltered life in order to process things a lot of times. So I just think about all the things that I do that I absolutely don't really want to do, but I gladly do them because it makes my wife happy. I gladly do them. It has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with what it is. It has everything to do with who is pleased by me doing that. Now, when we obey God, when we obey Christ, it's pleasing unto Him. It's pleasing unto Him. And it should be pleasing unto us that it's pleasing unto Him. Where has that, where has that slipped away? How, how did that, how did that disintegrate from, from underneath the church today? Where did that come from? I mean, Satan has really worked a work. I mean, the heart of a disciple, as I read in Scripture, as I look in the pages of God's Word, is one who has experienced such a mind-blowing grace. One who has come in contact with a God that is so, whose love is so insurmountable, whose glory is so, that the depth and the breadth and the height and the width of this God is so immense that their lives are just flipped upside down. And whatever may come against them, they, they just, they just push forward through things that, let's face it, none of us have any clue about. We can't even, the, the place we can't relate is to the suffering that we see here. Because we, let's face it, we live in Disney World. I mean, we skate through life. Skate. I mean, part of this morning's sermon that got thrown out because... I mean, let's face it, there's, I mean, we could easily just miss Sunday school altogether, and it could happen. Was, I had an entire page of what would the average American household look like if we made it to mimic the average household worldwide. And I had an entire page of all the things that had to be removed and that would change. And it was astonishing, astonishing to stop and think that the poorest people we know are in the top 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet Earth. And most people, most people in this room are higher than the top 5%, higher in the world, in 7 billion people. And yet, obedience is a, is a struggle for us and 
these believers at Philippi would just receive this? Paul is writing this letter from where? Thank you. I mean, think about it. I mean, the, the crazy thing is that we live in this sort of bizarro, shallow, man-imagined Christianity where I literally find myself having the same conversation with saved people or professing Christians that I do with lost people. Okay, let me say that again. Have you ever found yourself having the same conversation with a professing Christian that you have had with people who are admittedly and totally separated from God? That is the craziest thing in the world. I would, that's the question I'd love to ask Paul. I'd love to ask Paul that. I'd say, Paul, can you imagine having the same conversation with a believer that you'd have with a non-believer? I mean, he, he, that right there would blow his mind. It would blow his mind. And yet, I am talking, I'm trying to speak to people as if they're Christians, and I have to just revert back to talking to them as if they're not because everything I'm saying is just going right in one ear and out the other. In other words, when I talk to people as if they're saved, they're looking at me like I'm nuts. Is it in any way plausible that a person can trust Christ with their eternity and then take what Christ says that we're to do and make it suspect, put it up for discussion. I mean, just think that through. Just think about that for a second. I mean, think about what happens in my brain, when I look at someone who is telling me they are a Christian and I open my Bible and I say, thus saith the Lord, and I read it and they look right back at me and go, well, I just can't do that. Wait a minute. Let's try this again. I mean, I can't compute that. What is, how does that happen? What do you mean? I mean, how... How on one hand is my eternity, I am trusting my eternity in your hands, but when you call me to do something in this life that doesn't make sense to me or doesn't add up to me or doesn't seem practical to me, well, I'm just not sure about that. What? No. No. Maybe this is the question. I'm getting to the to text. I'm just trying to... I'm, I want you to come with me on this journey. Maybe this is the question we need to ask. What costs more? Obedience or disobedience? What is more expensive? What does the Bible say with regards to those two 
things because it seems like there's a whole bunch of people who are professing faith in Christ, who are scared to death about the high cost of what God may be calling them to do. Well, maybe what we should do is have a discussion about let's weigh the cost of disobedience with obedience. Let's think through, let's process through Jesus' words when he said, well, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? I mean, who, who, what would it take for you to trade your soul? I mean, in other words, the cost is always higher for disobedience. Now, fast forward. What about me? What's the higher cost in my life? What's the higher cost in your life? In your redeemed life? What's more expensive? Obedience or disobedience? It's always disobedience, no matter how you slice the pie. So when you're standing there or when you're trying to talk to someone or God is moving in your heart and you're resistant to where he's moving, then just stop for a minute and go do a simple mathematical equation. Obedience. It's not going to be easy. It's going to cost me. I'm going to have to take up my cross and die daily. I mean, it's not going to be a a walk in the park. But disobedience is infinitely higher in cost. In other words, well, do I... I mean, what are people going to think if I do this? I mean, how is my family going to react? How are my friends going to react? How's my how's my job going to react? How are these things? Okay, those are all valid questions, but let's go back over here. Ladies and gentlemen, how is Jesus Christ going to react when I'm standing in front of him face to face? How's that going to fly? I mean, do you think anyone's going to be standing there? At the judgment seat of Christ, looking directly into the face of God and going, but you see, the thing is, God, you never met my mother. You mean, you didn't know who I was married to. It was dicey. Really? No. It just doesn't add up. So when Paul says... Therefore, my beloved, I mean, just think about what he says. Let's look at this. Just walk with me through this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's clearly moving to something. He's moving from something from the therefore and he's moving to something. We can see that by the flow of the words he's using about what he's conveying. And so the first thing I want you to see is that he refers to the Christians that he's speaking to as beloved people. And they're not just beloved, they're obedient. But they're struggling. But they're they're obedient, beloved people. They're they're not they're not out there. I mean they're they're going forward. And he says, now, you, you have been obedient and you are beloved, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, does that not seem, it that seems like that's a little out of place. Like that wouldn't be the crowd you'd be talking to. Right? Work out your salvation. I'm talking to people who are beloved and they're obedient. 
But what does he mean? To get the real essence of what Paul is saying, you've got to focus on that word work and you've got to really settle in on that and you've got to figure out, okay, that's the key to understanding that everything Paul is saying here. Because what so many people do is they get tangled around and they think this work is about what I need to do is do things so that I can earn my salvation. I can work for my salvation. But that's not at all what this word means. This word work, it's an agricultural term. It's the work that would, it's the word that would be used if a farmer were to work his field. Now, you should definitely write this down in the margin of your Bible. If a farmer is going to work a field, whose field is it before the farmer starts working it? The farmers. Whose field is it while the farmer's working in it? The farmers. Whose field is it after the farmer is done working in? The farmers. The farmer is not gaining possession of anything new when he works in his field. He's working in what he already possesses. And so Paul is saying to you and me, that's how we're to work out our salvation. That believers are to work in the field of their salvation. That we're to work in that. We're to invest ourselves in that. In other words, what we want to do is harvest everything out of our salvation that we can. Because we don't want to live a life of no consequence. We don't want to just cruise through on cruise control and miss everything that God had there for for us. We want to walk in the good works that God has laid out for us. Just a couple verses earlier, right? Where he says we're his poema, his workmanship. So we're to work as a farmer works in a field. He, he possesses that. So the notion that if, if we do good things, if we help people, then God's going to love us more is utterly and completely ridiculous. That you're going to gain something. No, you're not. You're, you're going to, what Paul's talking about is you're going to gain a reward within what you already possess. It's your field, but your field has the potential to produce a crop. And your crop is not my crop, and my crop is not your crop. Well, you got to say that carefully. It's not. But so what you do. The potential that could grow in the field that you possess in your salvation, only God knows. But the danger is, is that you would just throw a couple seeds here and there and just wander along through life. And do you see? You see what Paul is, is pointing us to? In other words, we're called to work out what God has already worked in. That's the point. That we're, we're already loved, we're already accepted, and therefore, we live out of what we already are. He says, beloved, you have already obeyed. Now work out your salvation. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to get in the field. And we need to work in the field. And we need to harvest every single thing we can from the field that we have. You see, this isn't about becoming something that you're not already. 
That is just a gross misunderstanding of this passage of Scripture. Paul has already definitively laid down. We've discussed this in detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. This is all past tense. This has already happened in Christ. The, this, what you're working out, you possess. If you're beloved, if you obey, you possess this. So think of it this way. Our obedience is mere evidence to that which we possess. You see? But it doesn't earn anything. It's just, it's just a pointer. It's just an indicator. It's just a sign, if you will. Lest we, but, but see, Paul knows. He knows, he knows how demented our hearts are. He knows that we will absolutely go to legalism every time. Grace is so dangerous. It just, it just wrecks the human mind. And so look at what he says. I mean, look at the next verse. Verse 13. For it is God. Let's say that together. For it is, it's not you. It's not me. It's God who works in you. So just in case you thought you were going out into the field and you were going to earn yourself a field, Paul's like, well, let's just back up and make sure we're on the same page. It's God who's working in you to will and to do. It's Him. He's the one. It's, he's the one that gave you the field. He's the one that's empowered you to work in the field. He's the, he's the behind everything about the field. It's all Him. But we have to actually walk off the front porch and crank up the tractor and go out there and start sowing. Or we just squander all the potential that that field holds. You know, you don't have to harvest. You don't have to. You can just grow enough for you to eat. You can just feed yourself or you can feed the people closest to you. And do you know what? The scariest thing about this is, is that God will allow you to do that for the most part. For the most part, He will allow you to do that. But it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. Because it's not what He intended. Because it's God who works to will and to do. It's God who is working to accomplish those things that are for His good pleasure. It's so important that you see the end of verse 13 because it does not say my good pleasure. It does not say your good pleasure. It says His good pleasure. Every word matters. So what God desires, Christ provides. You see, what God desires to be harvested from your field, Christ, you have in Christ. Do you understand that? God doesn't desire for you to harvest anything out of your field that Christ hasn't provided you. It's all there. You have everything necessary to harvest it. Because that's why yours is different than mine and mine is different than yours.
And so that when that phrase works in you, that phrase in the, in the original language, it means to energize. Think of it as God is the one that supplies the power. He's, he's the, he's the batteries and the bunny that make the bunny go. He's what energizes the, the, the farmer to farm. He's what energizes the work in the field. This is why we have, there's no room for us to be prideful. We, we can't, we can't get hung up on ourselves and think, oh wow, look at what I did. Well, no. Because it was all energized by God. It's God gave you the field. God in Christ gave you everything you need to harvest that field. And He's the one who energizes you to be able to go out there and do that. So let's be practical. What do we do when God calls us to do something that we don't want to do? Now, we have two choices right here. This is like a a very pivotal moment in tonight's sermon. Because you have a choice to make. Mentally, you can just play a little uh, spiritual dodgeball and you can try to hoop yourself into this fantasy land that this doesn't happen to you on a regular basis. Or you can come over here with me and, and be in the real world and be honest. What do you do when God calls you to do something that you don't want to do? You don't want to do it. You don't feel like doing it. You don't see the advantage of it. It's not something you enjoy. It's, it's, you, you perceive negative consequences coming from it. However you want to frame it. That's the boat I live in, and I'm pretty sure that's the boat you live in. What do you do in that moment? Because I think this is a telling moment right here for you to just sink down into your heart and answer this question. What do you do? What happens when God calls you to do something that absolutely terrifies you? What do you do? What do you do when you feel your heart nudging in a way and you're like, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I don't know if I can, I, I, I. And then immediately, what is the game we play? We play the silliest games with God. We, we start doing this number. We go, maybe I just don't understand that scripture fully. Maybe that's not what it means. Maybe, maybe it was for me to tell my husband or my wife, or maybe that was, I mean, we start deflecting all these. No, what do you personally do when God calls you to do something that just freaks you out? It's scary. What do you do? What do you do? This is where I just want to wait in silence for like 10 minutes and just let it get real awkward. Because I want you to experience what I experience when I'm preparing. Because it's really awkward in my heart. Because I'm thinking about this. What do I do? How do I respond in these moments? What does the person do? It's it's first thing I can do is I can think about what other people do because that's what we do best. So we think about other people. So what does someone do who's who's not a disciple? He's just a dabbler. What do we do with the person who's just, you know, sort of passingly, you know, intrigued by 
religion or by the idea of Christ or salvation or church or belonging or acceptance or love or whatever the case may be. You know, you're just sort of passing through. You know, you're just in, you know, hear a sermon, that was good, out, no, 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 no big deal. It's just kind of, we're just rolling with the, we're just going with the flow. What does that person do when God calls them to do something they don't want to do? Well, I think that's fairly easy. Now, what about the disciple? What about the person who is uh, deeply committed to Christ, who carries a burden to obey the things of God, who wants to please the one whom he or she loves, whose heart is filled with affection and, and admiration and love towards God. And then suddenly God calls you to do something and All of your life, you have convinced yourself that's not you. It's not how you're designed. It's not your... It's If God would have called me to do that, He would have given me the skill, the ability to... Well, that's partially true. The assumption that you're going out on, the false assumption there, is that you will have discovered and know it and harness it prior to His calling. That's not how that works. You'll have it. You may not know it. All we need to know is, did God say it? And is he say it to you? Because if he said it to you, that's the end of the discussion. Right? I think it is. And we just move. And no matter how scary it is, no matter how impractical it seems, no matter how, uh, you know, it's just, I, 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 don't, I don't see how I can, but God is calling me to do this. Where are the men and women that God's calling to do something that's beyond the bounds of you to conceivably do that? This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, you need to work out your salvation. You need to get out there. You see, the farmer, when the farmer is out in the field working, he has no way of knowing what the field will produce. He's sowing and he's working and he's tilling and he's plowing totally by faith. Not only does he not know the quality of the seed, he doesn't know for sure the quality of the soil. He has no clue what the weather's going to do. He has no control over all the variables that play into the harvest the field produces. And yet God says, you go out in the field and you work and you let me worry about the details. I'm the one that makes the rain fall. I'm the one that raises the sun every morning. I'm the one that tills the soil and prepares the ground. I'm the one that produces the harvest. You and me are farmers in a field. We're called to work the field. We're not called to sit down with a spreadsheet and calculate what the return is going to be. That's not our job. We just go and begin sowing and working by faith in whatever it is that God's called us to do. We don't evaluate our giftedness in some certain area, our capacity to do that. We just do it because God said do it. And when we're doing it, how do we respond? Let's suppose that we've crossed the hurdle, the first hurdle. God's called you to do something you don't want to do. So let's suppose that you've crossed that hurdle now and you've actually engaged yourself in this unwillingly, but you've engaged yourself in this. Now what? Now what happens? Now what's the danger? To have a bad attitude about it. To be in grumbling and complaining. 
Why do you think that's the next thing Paul talks about? Because that's exactly what we do. When we do agree to go into the field that God's given us and to begin to work in the field with everything that God's provided for us and to to trust Him in the harvest, even though we've already supposedly trusted Him with our eternity, but now we're struggling because we just don't know if these corn plants are going to come up like they're supposed to. So we're struggling with this. So when we finally get here, then as soon as things don't grow the way we think they ought to grow, we start whining about it. Because we've already presupposed in our mind the way this ought to be, the way this ought to look, the way this ought to go. Either we've compared our field with somebody else's, which is sin, or we have puffed ourselves up with pride and come up with our own idea about what it's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to work. And so we start grumbling. We start getting all bent out of shape about it. I would commend to you what I'm commending to myself. And that is this. I I put a I print it out on a big piece of paper in my office. Because I want to I want this to stare me in the face until I get it sunk deeply into my heart. And it's this truth. We must do what we don't want to do to become who we've always wanted to be. The gospel calls us to do what we do not want to do to become what we've always wanted to be. Just like a, there's never a, a, been a bride or a groom that stands in a church with a pe- preacher in front of all their friends and family and is committing themselves to life and to get married. In that moment, they're not standing there thinking, you know, I'm just not sure about you. You know, you're not, you're not as cute up close as I thought you'd be. I'm not, this is all kind of, I mean, by that point in time, hey, they're full of hopes and dreams and they've got all these wonderful thoughts in their head. Well, guess what? That's how you and I were when we came to Christ. Suddenly God saved us. And suddenly, boom, our slate is clean. And for the first millisecond ever, we are not condemned by our sin. We're not under the weight of the law. That we It's like a bird that takes flight for the first time. It's the most glorious feeling in all the world. And we just begin to soar in the freedom, the joy of our salvation. And so quickly... What happens? So quickly we lose that. Remember that joy. Remember what you dreamed God could do. Remember when you said God really can do anything in me. He really can do that. Remember that feeling. And the way to get there is you have to do what you don't want to do. That's how you're going to get there. You're never going to get there doing what you want to do because you want to do the wrong things. That's why Paul says, I don't do the things I ought to do. I do the things I want to do. You know why? Because that's what I do and that's what you do. That's what we all do. So if you're doing what you want to do, that's clue number one. Mistake. Don't do that. If you want everything to harvest out of the field... That you can harvest, you've got to do what you don't want to do. It's just that simple. I don't know any other way to put it. There are so many times 
when my heart wants to cut corners. It's so tempting to just ease over to the, you know, the, 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 the rest area. I can't do that. I can't do that. Because I know that's not the path to where I want to be. I have to do what I don't feel like doing. I have to keep going. And I'm not gritting down inside of myself to do it. I'm going. And listen, I'm back to where I started. I'm doing what I don't want to do because I love the person that is delighting in what I'm doing. I am doing what I do not want to do because I love to see the smile upon His face when I'm doing that which is pleasing unto Him from a heart that is merely motivated by love. You put duty in the equation and you are going to muddle the waters. You are going to muddle the waters. In the same way that my wife wants nothing to do with some flowers bought out of compulsion or some uh, words of kindness out of, you know, conviction. She's not interested. You know what she wants? Genuine, authentic love. Don't offer your heavenly father anything that you wouldn't accept from one another. He's not interested. He's not interested. Love, motive, we are compelled by love. So then we're, let's finish, verse 14. So Paul then says, this is the danger. Do all things without complaining and disputing. What? Why? Because that's exactly what will happen if we're not careful. We're going to start... And who are we grumbling with? Who, who are the Philippians grumbling with, by the way? So we've got the Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Their struggles are all moral. We've got Paul writing to the church at Galatia. Their struggles are all theological. We've got Paul writing to the church at Philippi. What are their struggles? Relational, internal. That, that's themselves. And why? What do you do and what do I do when the pressure from the outside pushes in? We start turning on one another. The world starts, starts cranking the vice of persecution around us. And we start squeezing together and, and, in unity and solidarity and strength. And it won't be long before we'll start after each other. Because I, I'm, I'm taking more than you're taking. And you're not holding up your part. Nah, 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 nah. Isn't that what we do? Yeah. How come, how come I'm so tired? And I'm so, how, where's all my help? Oh, that's just me? Okay, just checking. Complaining and disputing. I'm about done because it is so hot in here. I, if I preach ten more minutes, I might drop dead. Verse 15. Why? That you may become blameless and harmless. Look at what's going to happen. Look at what happens in, in obedience motivated by love. We'll become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Where are we? In the midst of... There's a sermon brewing. It ain't tonight, but it's coming. And the whole sermon is on in the midst of. I am so weary of this separatist Christianity that is such a chicken 
of the big bad world out there that's going to eat us all alive and chew us up and spit us out. That is not what the Bible says. Read it for yourself. It says, where are you? Oh, it's crooked. Oh, it's perverse. Oh, it's dark. It's got to be dark. Why do I know it's dark? Because you can't shine like a light if it's not dark. But where are you? You are in the midst of it. You are not on the outside of it. You're not running away from it. You're not scared of it. You're in the midst of it. Why? Because you are more than a conqueror in Christ. So we're complaining and we're disputing. Where does, he, where does Paul pull those words from? He pulls them right out of the book of Deuteronomy. He pulls those words right out of the mouths, right off the lips of the children of Israel. Because isn't that what they were doing when they were wandering? They're trying to make their way to the promised land. And what are the words? Complaining and disputing. They're murmuring. That's the same thing. That's what they're doing. And then what is Moses pen? Deuteronomy 32. Look at these verses. He, capital H, is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Now notice, that grand preeminent statement followed by this. They, they who? They, the children of Israel, have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. That's exactly where these words come from. That's exactly what Paul reaches back and pulls out and puts right there. God gives us right there in Philippians chapter 2 what comes right out of the history of God's people, murmuring and complaining. The pressure from the outside world starts to clamp around us like a vice and the response is we turn on one another, we run in fear, and we cower down and hide as if the God that we serve is some little puny little action figure or something. I mean, what in the world? What are we afraid of? I mean, if the next presidential election is like the last presidential election, you would have thought the world was coming to an end. God had been knocked off the throne. I mean, I heard all I could stand. Wait a second. The last time I checked, heaven did not have a change of authority. The word of God still stands unblemished and true. Now, you might grieve over certain situations. You might mourn over direction and policies and movements. and what, But do not, do not fear. Do not fret. Do not, do not cower down to the powers of this world. And so what does he say? Paul finishes the end of verse 15. Among whom this crooked and perverse generation that we're in the midst of. We're obeying, compelled by love. We're working the field that we possess. And he says, you shine like a light in the world. Hey, I don't want to miss it. Dear God. May it be said of my life that I shined. May it be said of your life that you shined in this world. What a tragedy it would be if you lived out your life on this earth and didn't shine. Because, Lord, are you telling me 
that we might spend so much time and energy grumbling about how dark the world is that we actually miss the opportunity to shine. Last time I checked, the darker the darkness, the bigger the difference the tiniest light makes. So if my simple calculations are true, the opportunity before you and me is pretty tremendous. It's pretty unbelievable. And how are we going to do this? We're holding fast to the word of life. So that, Paul says, notice this. What's Paul's fear? You you sense a little fear in his heart? Look at his words. Look at what he says. Just feel what he's saying here. He says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not. You hear, Paul? Please, please do not squander your opportunity. Please don't let me stand before God and find out that my labor among you was in vain. Please, the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, you hear, you sense in his voice that maybe, maybe there's the potential that those who are in the beloved and who are, who are obedient and who are counted worthy and are ready to have everything that they need, that they may squander that opportunity. And Paul, Paul says, please may it not be so. May it be that I rejoice in the day that I stand before Christ. Because all that I have sown in your field would not be sown in vain. You see that for me and for you, all of this winds down to just a few simple truths. And that is, Jesus says to you tonight, if you are mine... You are light. If you are mine, you are light. You are made to shine. You are energized by me to shine. I will not force you to shine. But make no mistake about what your purpose is. Your purpose is to shine. Not to sit under a basket, but to shine like a city on a hill. That you are, you are the light of the world. And so as you're in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, why don't we not be so afraid that the big bad world is going to get us? Why don't we be a little bit more afraid that we might disobey the one who reigns over the universe? Why don't we just balance the cost of obedience against the cost of disobedience. All of us tonight, if we're in Christ, our lives are either compelling or repelling. It's one or the other. We're meant to shine. And if the light's not shining, you're repelling. You're repelling people away from Christ. That you were meant to shine. In other words, you were meant for people who are lost and separated from God to know you, to see you, to interact with you, and to marvel at you. They may not. They may not change. They may not. Uh, certainly, they're not all going to be converted. They're not, they may not even talk to you, but they should marvel at you. They should marvel at who you are. They should marvel at the difference between you and them.
they should scratch their heads and think, there must be something to this Jesus. Because how else can I explain this life that's before me? This light that's shining in the midst of this darkness that I'm in. I may not understand all the theological ramifications, but hey, there's something different about you. There's something different about the way you speak. There's something different about the way you manage your resources. There's something different about the way in which you prioritize your time. And there's just something different about you. You're not expelling yourself. You're in the midst of the darkness. But the light is on. And people, there you cannot stand in a dark room and turn a light on and there be anyone else in the room and then go, did someone turn a light on? Is that what happened? Is there a light or was that just a shadow? No. If the light comes on, they're going to see it. So if no one's seeing it, then the light's not on. You see, dabblers don't shine. Disciples shine. Disciples shine. Obedience shines. Obedience compelled by love. Paul's concern for you and for me is that we wouldn't miss out. Just as he's concerned over those he's talking to in Philippi. May it not be so. May it not be so. That we squandered this opportunity that we have. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we just marvel, Lord, as we just pause and think about the goodness of you to us in Scripture. Lord, I'm so very grateful, so very grateful that such a hard word can come to our hearts with such compelling compassion and such an intriguing love that, God, you would go to every conceivable length to make sure that we had every opportunity to understand that we possess everything we need to possess. That you call us to do things that we don't think we can do. That you command us to do things that we flat don't want to do. But that in the midst of all that, you've placed your spirit within us to never leave us or forsake us, to always guide and preserve us, to, to, to seal us in you. That no weapon formed against me and my brothers and my sisters can prosper because it's the heritage of the children of the Lord. Thank you. God, I pray that every mom and every dad in this room would be a warrior for Christ in front of their children. I pray that our children that are in Awana right now, Lord, would look to the faith of their parents and would see heroism in them. That would inspire them to dream big dreams and to, to do great things. That they would embrace the reality that to be that which they've always dreamed of being, they've got to do that which they don't want to do. But that there's joy 
inexpressible joy in obeying who we love. Thank you, Lord. God, help us not to squander, to live out the fullness of all that you've given us in Christ. So, Lord, will you just take this time and do what you see fit, Lord? God, will you just begin working in our hearts? Show us, Lord, how to respond to what you've spoken. And, Lord, that we might be obedient, not because we understand, not because we comprehend, and certainly not because we want to, but because you are God. In Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open if you'd like.